his movies are all like generally thought of as heartwarming. Is that fair? I think they try hard to be heartwarming though. I think that's really something. I mean, especially given that like so often they are really staring into the abyss. Mm-hmm. They do ultimately, I don't know, make you feel good. I'm not sure how or why. I like the one with the Grand Budapest. It felt very nostalgic. Yeah, I think that there's a strong element of nostalgia through all of these. Yeah. And a feeling that like, we're not going to try and recapture the past, but even moving forward into the future, we can learn things from the way that it went and maybe that'll make us better people. They are surprisingly optimistic. What marks good art and what marks good taste and what is deemed worthy of putting up for different class levels. They have the time lapse of them, you know, just digging down. And how could you read this movie and not say that, okay, not only are you stealing from the foxes, but you're stealing also from the environment, as it was. So therefore, you are a crook. You can't really put it into words, you know, the space between what you see and what you can describe. I think that it would be easy to describe it as symmetry, but it's more than that. Welcome to The Pointless Century, where we discuss films, literature, and culture in an attempt to understand what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. Welcome to The Pointless Century. Tonight we're talking about five Wes Anderson films with focus on Bottle Rocket, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and the Grand Budapest Hotel, with secondary focus on the Darjeeling Limited and the Royal Tenenbaums. My name is Anna Wendorf, she, her, goon. I'll pass it off to our lovely sound editor. Hi, I'm Madeline Cave, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm visiting assistant professor Frank Fucile, he, him. Long ago, I recall watching Bottle Rocket and Rushmore when I was in college, which is my first contact with the Wes Anderson filmmaking style. Anna, tell us a little bit about what made you suggest this episode and your personal interest in Wes Anderson's films. Yeah, well, my personal interest in Anderson obviously comes from Fantastic Mr. Fox. You know, I've mentioned it multiple times throughout the months that we've been recording, you know, ever since the spring. And I watched it, I think the first time was admittedly when I was a little kid. And, you know, I've watched it at least five times, probably 10 times since then. And, you know, every time I watch it, the style, you know, everything, it doesn't get old for me. And I feel like if you can have a director to make that sort of impact on someone, then his work is worth exploring more and I found the same effect also in the Grand Budapest Hotel so basically my suggestion for this episode came from my love of this film but also you know his other work that I've seen and his symmetry and things like that 
I think it's interesting you put it that way because people definitely accuse Wes Anderson of being like a one-trick pony. So it's not surprising that I, a young donor dude in college, would be like, oh yeah, I remember those movies. I wasn't even like really super into them at the time. You can definitely see that he builds up his filmmaking and especially his screenwriting chops over the years. The visual style sort of comes fully formed, but the screenwriting takes a while to develop. So I guess it's funny then that actually your experience with his films is sort of, if you will, proof or the exception or a counter argument or whatever to point out that actually these can connect with people of many different age ranges, many different types of experiences, even though it's all of a piece. There is like a Wes Anderson style and it's so clearly formed. But I watched Fantastic Mr. Fox for the first time on Friday night. <laughs> the whole family with the kids. I'm sure. Yeah. It's a absolutely movie. loved it. Mm-hmm. And that's what you get every time, or at least for me, you know, I mean, obviously, you know what to expect if you've seen it multiple times from the plot. But I think from watching films in general, and you know, that's one of my favorites, obviously, but you notice different things every other time you watch it. And I don't know, I could talk for a long time about how much I love it, but I'm glad that they liked it, though. Madeline. I started watching the ones we're talking about last week. And before that, I had never seen a Wes Anderson film. So I know, I know. It feels kind of weird. I watched four out of the five that we needed. And I didn't get to see The Royal Tenenbaums, but I did watch Life Aquatic. There's another one there. That one's good. (laughs) I would say that, yeah, Life Aquatic and The Royal Tenenbaums are the two that I have watched the most number of times in my life. As I was watching it for the first time, I always heard people talk about how specific of a style Wes Anderson usually has and watching them all consecutively. It was so easy to point out all the things that he does in almost every single movie. It does make a really good auteur study. How would you identify those things? The first word that comes to my mind is quirky. I don't know, there are just so many things, especially when they have the same cast. I feel like they're able to hone in on those things and keep it going throughout the films. I mean, yeah, you have the Wilson brothers, which I love. (laughs) Something about Owen Wilson being like someone that's in Wes Anderson films doesn't sit right with me for some reason, and I don't know why. (laughs) Something about him. Are you familiar with his later work after he was in like other people's movies? Probably, yeah. He is kind of weird for a movie star, and part of the reason why Bottle Rocket got picked up in the first place was that people watched the test footage and they were like, Owen Wilson can't be a star. But he's also a weird star, especially in the Wes Anderson movies. He has that nose that's like kind of messed up. He must have broken his nose when he was younger. I can't explain any other reason why his nose would look like that, because his brother's doesn't look like that, you know? But frequently in these movies, and you see it in Royal Tenenbaums, you see it in Darjeeling Limited, and I think it happens at some point in Bottle Rocket, if I'm remembering correctly. He frequently like has facial injuries in these movies on top of that, which is kind of funny. He's like a sort of good-looking leading man playing all these dopey roles, but always with a damaged face. And they were from Dallas, so I assume that they grew up immersed in football culture. If you're in Dallas, how could you not be? I was always trying to place where Bottle Rocket takes place, and uh, I guess they were just supposed to presume it's Dallas, where you have this very comfortable, bourgeois, suburban life, but it's like rubbing up against the immigrant experience rubbing up against, I don't know, the sort of American memory of a lawless West in this context of mid-90s existential boredom. So Anna, how would you define the style? So obviously you have the Wilson brothers. You have the underwater shots that he does in each film. 
And you also have you know, one of my favorites, the Rolling Stones in every film. I think beyond that, what I admire most is kind of like what Madeline said, you know, the visual quirkiness, if I can describe it as that. And you can't really put it into words, you know, it's the space between what you see and what you can describe. I think that it would be easy to describe it as symmetry, but it's more than that. You know, it's the vibrancy of what he does and the shots that he picks out for each sequence. Yeah. And also, obviously, how those characters and how even the structures, like in Grand Budapest, how those structures move through those shots. Well, film studies, people will put it into words. <laughs> and maybe I can. There is something different going on about the way that he cuts these movies together and the way that he makes these shots kind of symmetrical often. So when they were shooting Bottle Rocket, which is, of course, his first movie, and like he literally never made a movie before. Like him and Owen Wilson were coming into this cold. They sort of stumbled into some connections and they got Polly Platt, who was this sort of like behind the scenes producer type person who you know had attached herself to a number of really important movies from the 70s through the 90s, but often never really got any credit for the work that she did, except, you know, like behind the scenes, everybody knew what she did because she tended to be like either the friend of or the wife of or, you know, so on and so forth. But she saw the script and was like, this can be done. These dudes have no idea what they're doing. They don't even know how to format the script properly. You've got this one guy who like, maybe he wants to go to Yale to study philosophy or maybe he wants to make a movie. And, you know, you got this other guy who's, again, like a pretty face, but a damaged pretty face. And she's sure that she can make a really good movie for really cheap. And so she pulls the strings to be like, this is the one movie I want to do. And that ends up being Bottle Rocket. And over the course of the production, they keep having these battles with the production company because like they're coming to this as total outsiders. They've basically been given money. They're living in a hotel room. They're just like rewriting and rewriting the script and shooting it, you know, in the motel. And they get all these complaints that they're not giving conventional coverage. So conventional coverage is like a standard pattern of shots that you probably have seen in so many movies that you don't even think about them. And it, it has to do with the particular way that you angle the camera to get each actor's face, to do a nice wide shot to establish the scene, to do some close-ups on the faces. But instead of doing this standard shot, reverse shot that most directors will do, Wes Anderson always does this head-on shot, like a 90-degree angle from the acting plane, instead of doing two different diagonal shots for each character who's speaking. And as he was shooting this, he was actually, in a certain sense, you might say very clever, or maybe just very stubborn, I don't know which, <laughs> to not allow the studio to have other options. So they always got in trouble for not doing standard coverage. And, you know, this is the example where being the asshole who's just like, I'm a genius, is actually maybe worth it. But, you know, literally never made a movie before and just like, yeah, we're going to reinvent this. But there are a couple of other things about the way that he does that. Because he does that head-on 90-degree setup, it gives his movies a very, like, stagey feel. You, you probably notice this without even thinking about how it's done. The movies often feel like they're a play. Yeah. And sometimes what he'll do is he'll do, like, cutaway sets. There'll be, like, a whole building, but then the facades cut away. It's really obvious. He even does it in the animation for Fantastic Mr. Fox, and he does it in Life Aquatic, too. So... What else is quirky about this? I do dislike that word, but it, it has come to mean something more specific than it once did. Why do you hate it? 
Well, just because if someone says something's quirky, it's like, what? What does that mean? Does that mean you like it? I think that what it's come to mean, if because we just listened to that lecture I did on the culture industry, what is disheartening about the quirky label for me is that it is a way for slapping a label on to things which might actually be described in very specific terms and then using that as a marketing strategy by saying this is new and this is different. But then again, you know, what's normal? Is the normal actually the recycled crap that you've pushed on everyone in the past and you keep recycling? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's it. That basically that label quirky is like anything that's outside the norm. And what we get here is people who are literally reinventing how to make a movie. And so they just have a different way of approaching it. And that's kind of cool to see that developed within America itself. You would normally expect to see that in like another nation's cinema. You can make an argument that Wes Anderson is the last auteur director of the 20th century. I suppose it's between him and the Coen brothers. Some say he's the only remaining auteur director, but uh, you know, whatever that means. If we covered King Vidor as the first because D.W. Griffith is canceled and doesn't count, then Wes Anderson is the last. And if you think about the sort of production space in which this comes up, like a little after Tarantino hits big, right around the same time that the Coen brothers hit big, you see Wes Anderson as being in that like sort of last of this final crop of indie filmmakers that come out of the 90s and they go into the 21st century. It's incorrect to say that you don't have auteur filmmakers now. The two that I would point my finger at would be Jordan Peele and Rob Zombie. Go ahead, Anna. No, I was just going to say Aster too. Aster. Ari Aster. Yeah. Midsummer. So good. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, of course. Good point. Good point. One thing that I was surprised by was I was surprised that I enjoyed the Royal Tenenbaums as much as I did. I hadn't watched it in probably, oh, five or ten years, but I had watched it a lot of times before then. I was surprised that I enjoyed it as much as I did. I was also surprised that the Darjeeling Limited was the only movie of the bunch that actually made me laugh. Now, granted, a lot of the more comic ones in the bunch are ones that I'd seen a bunch of times. And Darjeeling Limited, I was screening for the first time this time around. But that was the only one that actually made me laugh. So I was kind of surprised. That's a really good point, because a lot of them are classified as comedy, but it gets back to our whole point on like what's quirky and what's not. But I would say they're charming, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, they didn't make me laugh. Even Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I I didn't get a chance to watch Darjeeling Limited. I probably will after this, but that's kind of bizarre, actually. I guess if you're going to classify films, you have to classify them as something, you know, for marketing and blah, blah, blah purposes, so... Yeah, I, my note on Bottle Rocket was, this is the saddest funny movie ever made. Maybe not quite that, but very sad for a funny movie. I'm searching for words to describe it. I would say mostly dumb. Yeah, also low-key depressing. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that I thought here, rewatching it now years later, is that this must have had a huge influence on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I didn't think of it when I watched it, but when you say it, I think it makes sense. It's this sort of like aimless dudes 
trying to make a movie about aimless dudes trying to pull off some criminal heist, which they like know nothing about and can't actually do. And they don't really even both want to do it. One of them is just trying to humor the other one. And the one of them is like way too complicated, way too involved. He comes out with the notebook and he's like, here's the plan. And and five-year plan, the 10-year plan, the 25-year plan. He's straight up delusional. And he's the guy who wasn't in the mental hospital. But you need to also think about class dynamics here, because one thing that's really interesting about Bottle Rocket is that you have a sort of tripartite class dynamic there in that, like, we never see Dignan's home situation, but it's implied that he comes from a a poorer background. It's implied that he's working class and that he's got, like, sort of a fucked up family situation, too. It's just sort of referenced vaguely. And then Anthony... I mean, he's definitely bourgeois. He's definitely upper middle class. He's comfortable. And then we have Bob, who's described as the rich kid, as though they aren't sort of both rich kids. Like Bob is even more rich than Anthony's family is. So we have a three-part class structure set up there. And there's this one moment where Dignan says to Anthony, it's something to the effect of, you know, did it ever occur to you that other people wish that they could take some time off and go to a mental hospital too? (laughs) And it's like kind of a weird sideways burn because it's like this is only something that a crazy person would say. But the fact that he's saying it is sort of indicating the fact that like, oh shit, he actually probably needs that. And also he doesn't have that resource available to him. I was watching Bottle Rocket and I was kind of just sitting there thinking, what's the point to this movie? And that's the same kind of thought that I have when I watch It's Always Sunny, so... That was apparently a problem at the test screenings, that they would do these test screenings when they were trying to cut it together, and they'd have people in the field, and they'd be like, it seemed like a completely pointless movie. Which, of course, it is. You want my thoughts on the romance, or lack thereof? The so-called romance between Anthony and Inez. Sure, sure. Well, within Bottle Rocket, we have these two idiots, complete morons, wandering through, trying to just blow their money as fast as they can off of this book robbery. One I love that they rob a bookstore. Like, who thinks of doing that? Yeah, who does that, by the way? That just proves that you're morons. I mean... You should be on Always Sunny. Just go down to the pub and have a drink. It'll be fine. No, but they wind up at this really, in my opinion, gross motel, but that's the point, because they're on the lam. The librarians are going to be after them. One of our main characters meets this oh-so-charming housekeeper. The is actually a stalking episode where he follows her around while she does her rounds, while she, you know... That's later. Okay, that happens after he sees her at the pool, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, he just sees her, he, yeah. He sees her because he's sitting like this all macho, you know, with his muscles out, of course. And then she's just doing her work, and of course she flips her hair. Her her back has been so far, I feel like the girl's going to snap in half. But after that, you know, he follows her around, and then they develop this really weird relationship, whatever. And everyone can figure out what happens. I mean, (laughs) ooh. But all in all, yeah, they have a little fling. I don't see what the point is, but again... That's me as a woman. I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. 
if it's your first film and you have seven million dollars to make it and if you're adding in all of your other adventures why not add in an adventure with a woman in there you know that's how i see it i don't think that a woman would have written this right no she, no that's my point <laughs> yeah it doesn't make sense to me in any way and i think that it's kind of regrettable that it feels heartwarming or it feels like it's supposed to be heartwarming it feels like this is supposed to be the thing that shows that anthony can connect with people yeah but they do it in such a weird way i mean at least to me it was just off-putting I, I agree with you i agree with you Maybe it would have been different if it was not a romantic connection, but, you know, the way that he goes about it, okay, first of all, is creepy. And then you get into, obviously, there doesn't have to be a substance, but what is the substance of this relationship if what you're trying to do is show that he can actually interact with other people besides Dignan? There's a similar thing going on with Jason Schwartzman's character, in the Darjeeling Limited. And it's sort of weird to me that like, Jason Schwartzman looks a lot like Luke Wilson to my mind. He's shorter and has more ethnic features, but he basically has the sort of same type of look. I don't know, Madeline, you, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I would say so. You're talking about Jason Schwartzman's character having the fling with the person on the train, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, her name is Rita. Yeah. And it's supposed to show us that he is more relatable and less of a stuck-up prick. This is kind of, again, coming off of listening to that episode about Metropolis, this is kind of the same trope of like, I'm a bougie fuck, but my dick has morals where I don't. My dick has solidarity with the working class. I love what Inez says to him. You're like paper. You're like trash. You're like paper floating by. The dude who's translating for us says, it doesn't sound that bad in Spanish. (laughs) (laughs) Trying the most to make him feel better when really, mm, he was just completely dissed, yeah. But, But I've decided that that is actually a Wes Anderson thing that we see in his movies. As much as his movies are like obvious dude movies, and I would say... They're like filiarchy movies, if I'm remembering the term correctly. Everybody else would call it dude movies or bro movies is sort of the way that people would probably say it these days. As much as his movies are bro movies, they at least attempt to self-critique. You have a lot of these scenes, it's a sort of characteristic of the dialogue that there will be very flat affect in the delivery, except in key moments where people get heated. But another thing that we'll see sometimes when there's an interplay between those things, we have one character will make an assertion regarding their life, and then someone they love will immediately undercut it, contradict it, blow it up, and be like, fuck you. And it's usually these dudes, you know, in their very monotone, I'm so blank and disillusioned, saying how it is, and then somebody else, often a woman, not always coming in and being like, no, fuck you. That happens on repeat in Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh yeah, oh yeah. What was the term? Filiarchy is probably not a term that anyone actually uses, but it's a term that I picked up from Samuel R. Delaney. His point was that we say we have a patriarchy, but actually a lot of what we have is a filiarchy, which is to say, it's not about the fathers, it's about the sons. And in Wes Anderson movies, we see how it's about how sons become fathers. And it's really about how the sons of those fathers get every break in the world. 
and then become kind of shitty fathers because of it. And you see that, yeah, again, even in the fantastic Mr. Fox, where it is about a literal patriarch, and yet it's all about like, why are you still acting like a boy? We see it in the Royal Tannenbaums too. The plots end up being all about, well, how am I going to stitch this family back together? In some cases, it's not a literal family. In some cases, it's the brothers or maybe like the friendship, you know. Right. You just end up pregnant in a supermarket. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. It is a weird ending when you put it that way. (laughs) The juice boxes are not the father. (laughs) But yeah. God, it is weird when you think about it. It's really weird. I think that I was surprised at how much the Fantastic Mr. Fox actually fits in with the themes of this show. I would not have expected that. First of all, okay, everyone who knows me knows that I love music. So that's part of the reason why I love this movie is because of the music that's included in it. You know, you have Street Fighting Man. You have Let Her Dance at the end when your life is knocked up again. So that's one element that attracted me to this movie and what makes me feel warm and (laughs) fuzzy inside. I'm way too tired for this. I would just hark back to, you know, not only do you get a classic or more developed in terms of screenwriting, you know, Wes Anderson film, you also get obviously the visual aspects. And also I find a lot of interest besides the music in the actual animation technique that he uses, at least from the movies that I've watched, I don't see that technique used a lot because I know it's really time consuming. Stop motion. Yeah. Yeah. So stop motion. And also, you know, if you get into things like claymation too, I would say, okay, you can analyze what techniques he's choosing to use for this film. And also, any text can be read against, I think, at least current and past society. So then you can say, okay, what does a broken family look like today and now? What does the patriarchy look like then and now? And what what does a women's role look like then and now? And then you get this whole interplay between, you know, roles in society, family, and also what is considered humorous and what makes humor. Madeline, what are your thoughts? I think the most intriguing part of Fantastic Mr. Fox is looking at it almost like in a Robin Hood sense, if that makes sense. All of these animals here are, say, like the lower class, and then the three farmers are like the big wealthy people, and the effect that it has on Mr. Fox's family. That's the way that I was looking at it the whole time. Absolutely, yeah. I thought that was interesting and how the consequences of Mr. Fox like taking from the wealthy, the effect it has on like his role as a father and as a husband throughout the movie. I was just going to say I like that. I like the class reading and you get that whole interplay and even how stealing from the rich impacts supposedly his community too. From watching the film you almost get this sense of like okay well this is why we don't do this is because not only it might benefit you, but it's not good for the people around you because blah, 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 and blah, 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 rely on this system and this system to provide us for what we need for our daily life. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that there is a class politics going on here, almost in spite of itself, but it hasn't been fully thought out Mm -hmm. as as it usually tends to be. 
what I noticed, if we're talking about class politics, I noticed that even within the three farmers, okay, you have the three farmers, which are the supposedly the higher class in comparison to the animals, but even within that group, you have Bean, who is the one who is even above the other two and who is leading mostly the escapade against Mr. Fox, too. Therefore, I don't know if you could take another class reading of that, but I thought that was interesting. Even within the upper echelons of class, you have always have people who are at the top of the upper echelon. Oh, yeah. That. And even in a children's film, you wouldn't expect to see that there. The book that I'm looking at here is called That's All Folks by Robin L. Murray and Joseph K. Human. The subtitle is Eco-Critical Readings of American Animated Features. I guess it starts from the, say, 50s Disney era stuff and goes all the way up through... Oh, it's published in 2011, I think, so... A lot of the point in books like this is that there can be a critique hidden in there, like maybe not a very good critique, like maybe not a full critique, but a critique nonetheless. And that might be a critique of capitalism or of environmental destruction or, you know, think of a movie like Wally, for instance, or a movie like Bambi, which for decades, actually Bambi has been blamed for the very real ecological problem of there not being enough hunting to curb deer populations. <laughs> Similarly, like there is a critique of capitalism baked into the fantastic Mr. Fox. Even down to the fact that, what are their names? Bogus Bunsen Bean, one fat, one short, one lean. <laughs> all these crooks, all different in looks, but none less equally mean. They're crooks. Why are they crooks? Well, how are they not crooks? How are they crooks? Capitalism would let us believe that they are actually law-abiding citizens who have produced and maintained their wealth. And well, the crook is Mr. Fox who's stealing from them. How are these men crooks? Yes, capitalism is like, oh, these guys are great, you know, but really the cycle of stealing goes around and around because the farmers are then stealing from the foxes and the foxes are stealing from the farmers. So who's stealing from who? You know, in that way they are crooks and in that way they are not the good producers that we would like to have them believe or have us believe. I think the way that the farmers retaliate also shows it. Just because of the sheer amount of manpower they have. Like, they're literally putting dynamite into their house. I don't know. Something about it. Yeah. They just <laughs> immediately go to destroying. Yeah. Right? yeah exactly. Like, they can just take them out, obliterate them, because they have the ability to. I love the time lapse set to music where they order the three specific, you know, backhoes or tractors. I don't know, machinery. They have the time lapse of them, you know, just digging down. And how could you read this movie and not say that, okay, not only are you stealing from the foxes, but you're stealing also from the environment as it was. So therefore, you are a crook. Destroy, destroying the land, right? I think that the term that's useful here is primitive accumulation. The prof that I had, who explained this best to me, KT Thompson, said, it's basically just stealing. <laughs> Primitive accumulation is basically just stealing. It's showing up and being like, this is my land. It's putting up a fence and being like, this is where my sheep are. 
don't let your sheep come over here. And also, by the way, any sheep that happen to be here when I set up this fence, they're mine now too. There we get back to the root of this podcast in having us speak. The best reading is the dumbest reading. I believe it. Yeah, I believe it. Professor Thompson probably described the theory to me better than anyone else has because it really helps to sort of cut through those knots of gnarly logic. Ultimately, it comes down to theft. We might use fancy terms for it, like accumulation or whatnot. But basically what it has to do with is who is making the laws and who has the rights. So if you're back in, say, England during the Enclosure Acts, then maybe it's a matter of, well, we rich folk, you know, are making the laws and you peasants are just living on the land. So when we throw up these fences and it's like, sorry, you're shit out of luck and we don't have serfdom anymore. You don't, you don't get to live here. That's been going for a long, long time. You know, not like that was good or anything, but like now you go to the cities and you get jobs, you know, or I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking about this because I'm, I guess, teaching some amount of public enemy, surprisingly on Tuesday. You have a certain point within the history of hip hop where the music industry throws up fences and they're like, no, you can't just sample whatever the fuck you want. You have to pay us for each sample that you do. And then at that point, everything shifts over to where like either you're a big time producer and you can sample whatever the hell you want, or you uh, are basically going to go to what ended up being popular now, which is like these very like stripped down beats, you know? The copyright issue is a really good example because it, it illustrates how you're sort of defining what stealing is. Is the stealing the moment where you say, this is the music, these are the sounds in my life, and I'm going to pick and choose a few of these things to make something new out of them? Or is the stealing the moment that you say, no, the world can't have that anymore. Actually, I'm the only one who's allowed to profit on it. So what you have is a situation where the humans get to decide who makes the laws, right? And of course, it's all humans. I mean, specifically rich ones. And the animals then are of the lowest of the low class, like well below the human working class. And Fogus and Bunts and Bean then get to say, well, this is all our wealth, which we have produced, which we sit on, and which we then hoard and which we then keep away from the starving animals. And then yes, you have a Robin Hood scenario where we then get to question what's defined as crookedness, what's defined as stealing. And obviously the film encourages us to think of what Mr. Fox does as good and right, even if that's questioned. But it's mainly questioned in terms of what its repercussions are for his family, not in terms of like the big picture question of right and wrong. So it is a fundamentally anti-capitalist movie. And I'd even go so far as to say that there's other things going on here that have to do with the way that states operate too. I, mean, I guess the most obvious is that we have the description of where the animals go when they hide. It says like then in parentheses, refugee camp. Is our life then just one big refugee camp from the industry and the systems that control us? I think that my favorite one that we watched was Life Aquatic with Steve Sisu. I think since it was the first one I watched, I remember all of the specific characteristics of an Anderson film the most with them, especially with the moving from room to room because I think there was one in each of the ones that I watched, and I really liked that. Flat tracking shot across the cutaway set. 
Mm -hmm. it makes yeah. everything feel like a stage yeah yeah i thought that was interesting the aspect of life aquatic that i think i enjoyed the most was watching steve zisu looking for remnants of who he used to be by trying to film a new documentary i think and that goes back to the scene where all of the crew members are watching videos of them from previous expeditions. And they're like, yeah, he used to be completely different. He wasn't always this way. And I think this was him trying to hang on to that life and also trying to hang on to things he had in that life, such as his friend Esteban. And everything that's happening is throwing a wrench in it, especially when Ned, his newfound son, comes in. I think Steve's resistance to change in the film is trying to say that you can't always hang on to what you used to have and you need to accept the changes that come your way. I think it also shows Steve trying so hard to control things that are out of his hands and slowly learning that he can't control them. And I think it certainly ties back into what we were talking about earlier with Wes Anderson bringing up the questions of what it means to have a role in a certain family dynamic, and Steve finds this out with Ned and how he should be a father after not being a father for 30 years, and this all of a sudden happens, and it just kind of shifts his paradigm in a way that he didn't expect, and I think it humbles him, I hope at least a little bit. Next. We will have Frank talking about the Grand Budapest Hotel. I got hip to this movie when I was at a film and history conference. The point is that at film and history, they always have some super technical keynote speaker. And it may have been my favorite keynote that I ever went to. I've been to keynotes that were done by heroes in the field. I went to a keynote by Donna Haraway, who's like talking about post-humanism and shit like that. I went to a keynote by Kim Stanley Robinson. The point is that I've been to a lot of conferences and the best keynote that I ever saw in terms of like, wow, that was really surprising was this one that I saw, I think it was, it must have been last year. It was all about aspect ratios. It was a whole fucking lecture on aspect ratios. And I love when someone can take the most boring ass topic in the world. Yeah, what the fuck? Bin it out for like an hour and a half and keep you fucking riveted to your seat. It was all about aspect ratios. And Madeline probably knows a little bit about this because I've brought it up when we do Instagram edits because Instagram does a square aspect ratio and old silent era films are a not quite but almost square aspect ratio. And then basically as you get further on at some point in the 50s and 60s, they start dragging the screens out more and more into like these widescreen aspect ratios to where like there's a difference between watching something on a TV versus watching something in the theater. And this yeah. was really, really obvious in the 90s when you still had cathode ray tube televisions, which were very boxy. And then with high definition televisions, we, we've gone back to the widescreen being standard, though there are different types of widescreen aspect ratios. So this is one reason why I love projecting everything. But when you do that, the aspect ratios become really obvious. The old movies are very boxy and very tight on the sides. And then you see around the 60s, things get very widescreen, very broad in their aspect ratios. The point is that you can see the aspect ratio really obviously. There's never been a standard aspect ratio. There are a few different ones that tend to be common, but what we've gone to now is what's called like a container format. And when the Grand Budapest Hotel was released, 
it actually came with a setup screen that was like set it up so that all of this is within the box and all of this is outside of the box it's a container format and then within the container format there are like four or five different aspect ratios in that film maybe i noticed it even without thinking about specifically what it was i guess that's my best answer well if you just noticed it without thinking about what specifically it was then it's like a different feel like we say quirky right these particular scenes feel different from these other scenes because they're tighter boxed in or they're wider or they're almost vertical in, in their aspect ratio. How they fill up the screen in different ways corresponds to the different frame narratives. So one thing that we get in some of these Wes Anderson films, not all of them, but in some of these Wes Anderson films, what we get is this sort of metatextual feel this sense of we're reading a book. It's really obvious in Royal Tenenbaums, where it's like, here's a chapter and here's, a ch here's another chapter and so on and so forth. Even though it's not an actual book, like we're pretending it's a book. It's a frame narrative. We're reading a book about a guy who's writing a book, who's interviewing this and that person and so on and so forth. So within all these frames, that's where we get all these different aspect ratios. Each is a different speaker. If we were reading Heart of Darkness, you'd know who was speaking based on the number of quotation marks at the beginning of each paragraph, because that's how some really pedantic and annoying novelist would do it. But it's Wes Anderson making a Wes Anderson film, and so you know who the speaker is and what the frame is, what the literal frame is, based on the aspect ratio of the scene. Some of them are more boxy, some of them are more wide, and also, because he does have a great attention to color as well, right? We have different color palettes. So like some are more grayish, some are more bright, and we have different set designs. So that's how I first heard about this movie, and that's what interested me about it. I think that one thing that I like about this movie that's very different from other Wes Anderson movies is we get a focus on the working class. We never see that in his other movies. So his other movies tend to really focus on the bourgeoisie, specifically the sons of the bourgeoisie, and then sometimes the petty bourgeois. Either drifting men of means or self-made weirdos trying to find their way. And what we see in the Grand Budapest Hotel are people who actually work and bizarrely believe in their work, trying to define themselves well, they define themselves by a belief in institutions. And I think that that might actually be one of the things that tips Wes Anderson's hand. It suggests a liberal belief in institutions. That belief in institutions starts out as, well, this is the Grand Budapest Hotel. This was a great place and we did great things once and we stood for something and this is a first-rate bellboy, and this is a second-rate bellboy, and the bellboy today ain't shit. The belief that, I guess, maybe generous belief that the institutions that we believe in will rightly serve us, but then you have to analyze it and go like, okay, well, actually, these things that you're asking from the very system which you trust, you can't really have those things to the extent that you want them without dismantling the system, at least a little bit. That's exactly the critique of this movie, because this is a movie about, like Fantastic Mr. Fox, this is a movie about a refugee crisis. Think in those scenes where they're traveling in the train, right? 
This is a movie that bases its worldview on a belief that institutions and connections and exceptions will save us when fascism comes knocking on the door. And those things work the first time around, early on in the war, when it's the regular officer is, can pull a favor, right? When you can pull a favor early on in the war with the regular soldiers, that might work. But then later on in the war, when you get the hardcore death squads coming out, you cannot pull a favor. And when you step out of line and try and stand up for the refugee and say, this is my boy, they will fucking kill you. He'll fucking kill you right there. And there you see, you know, I guess you can apply it to our, our current situation too. And it just reminds me of what you talked about previously. Like, okay, what box do I fit in? And then trusting the box to always be there. You know, the box that I fit in to the people who are acceptable versus the people who are not. And then, you know, you see later in the war, it relates to your point, like, okay, well, of course, maybe you fit into the accepted box earlier on in the war, but again, there comes a time where you keep, like you said before, and I remember this, you keep eliminating boxes, and then it comes to a certain point, well, you know, if you're an immigrant, that's undesirable as well. Well, and eventually it gets to like anyone who steps out of line, because the interesting thing about that last scene later on in the movie, right, is that the immigrant is not the one who gets killed. Zero is not the one who gets killed. Instead, it's his role model. So the point is that, I mean, and I think that this is a thing that a liberal will tell him or herself. I mean, I find myself indulging in these things as well, you know? And it's not like a purely political thing. It's a human thing to assume that, oh, it'll be okay. But that's like actually exactly the problem. That's the problem that we get to when we say like, oh, well, first they came for the communists, you know? And I was quiet because I was not a communist. There is a belief in the reasonable center that other people will be reasonable as well. And they're like, oh, well, I know a guy who knows a guy. And so therefore don't fucking shoot me in the head, you know? But it's... At a certain point, the guy you're talking to didn't know that guy and also has shot so many fuckers in the head that he doesn't care anymore. Mustafa doesn't get killed in that scene later on. What ends up happening is Mr. Gustav gets killed because he is stepping out of line. This is a, a movie that's released in 2014. It seems to me to be completely prescient. It seems completely aware of where things are going. And even if it's only dealing with these things in a very playful, silly way, it still is, to me, really meaningful in terms of its pessimism. <laughs> yes, Anna. In terms of its read on ruling class needs and will do, and then what the service class does. Because if nothing else, this movie is about the valorization of the service worker class. But I think it's also done from a perspective in which it seems pretty obvious to me that the people who made this movie never were service workers themselves. The two of you are yeah. like nodding so hard that you're going, oh my you're God. next. My That's neck. a generational difference because a dude who grew up in the 90s maybe got out of that. But anybody who grew up any later than that, even if only for a little while, had to do that at some point. And you guys are right in that era of your life. But you agree with me. This is a movie written by someone who's never worked a service worker job. Yeah, it's stupid. That's why I tried to quote the Blink-182 song. There weren't enough Karens in there for it to be a service worker job. 
Well, I think that part of the thing is that this is about a dude who loves Karens. This is a dude who literally, his thing is fucking Karens. No, 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 no. He has a Karen fetish. And they're not even just normal Karens. They're like the cream of the Karen crop. We're not talking about Karens here. We're talking about, okay, Karens are middle age, okay? This dude doesn't even go for the Karens. They don't even get that sort of dignity. He goes for the people who are even older than the Karens. He goes for the Dorothys. He fucks the Dorothys. So, but they're not, not middle-aged and not middle-class. They're like upper-age and upper-class. Yeah, that's a Dorothy. Yeah. That's not a Karen. Like a Dorothy Vaughn Karen. That's an interesting part of his personality, for sure. I love how they're all described as the same. You know, I love how he fits right in. Into, mm. There you get into the check marks versus yeah. for what the definitions of this higher class are. Yeah. You can apply that to what the check marks of our higher classes. Okay, they're all rich, you know, they're all blonde, they're all needy. Hmm. And yeah. basically he was all of those things except for old and rich, and eventually he became old and rich. Yeah. Right. It does seem to me to be very grotesquely characteristic of someone of an upper status to then define their working class characters not merely in terms of like well you're doing service but in terms of well actually this one guy the best guy who ever did this job actually his thing is that he so badly wanted to fuck the people who were in charge of him and actually also wanted to become them it's kind of a really exaggerated capitalist fantasy it's not just that your workers, actually you as workers so desperately want to be rich people too. I think that the saving grace is that it's filtered through European class hierarchy, which is a little bit different than the American class hierarchy. But it sort of comes to the same thing, which is that surely you want to be like us, right? Anna writes, you want to fuck money? If we're thinking about it, is that not the blend of what you just defined of what power is? This is where you as an actual worker are going to get it wrong. And that's not to say that you're wrong. It's just to say that the people who are above you who are creating the culture are more wrong in their reading of the society than you are because they believe in the superstructure. For you, it's very easy to boil it down to this is about money. So if you have a fetish about this, then it's like, oh, what are you going to do? Fuck money. That's a very crass way of putting it, but I get what you mean, right? It's a good critique. The point is that what's so sexy about money? What's so sexy about money? Well, nothing at all. Nothing at all is sexy about money. And in fact, there's nothing necessarily sexy about rich people. There's nothing sexy about rich people unless you construct a whole culture around talking about all the things that rich people like and all the things that they think are stylish as being cool. Unless you have a like very expensive painting that I, as a rich person, can appreciate and therefore you know that it's really meaningful and like, beautiful and special, Unless you have that kind of a cultural structure, that well, what Marxists would call a superstructure, unless you have that, then there's no way you can fuck money. You can only fuck money if you have invested cultural value in talking about how things are beautiful and that that becomes something that you can get paid for. You know, for someone like Wes Anderson, you can get paid to produce something that is beautiful. For someone like one of these European art collectors of the movie, then it's like, 
well, I'm paying money for something that is beautiful and in consuming that you can see my good taste and you can understand my beautiful soul. And then when you fuck me, you know that I have a beautiful soul and it makes you feel good about the fact that you're having sex with me. It's sort of weird how taste operates this way. And it doesn't necessarily need to be in an upper class realm. It can operate in the middle or lower class realm as well. When we say that, like, will I connect with this person because we like the same kind of art and we're listening to the same kind of music, we sort of are in sync with each other. Maybe there can be something sexy about the fact that we enjoy reading the same books or that we enjoy listening to the same songs or so on and so forth. That's what having good taste is. But taste can also be a class marker. And because taste can be a class marker, taste is a way that you can fuck money. Can I read the crucial quote? What's the crucial quote? There are still faint glimmers of civilization in this barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity. He was one of them. But then what, what I mean, what is that? Humanity was always a barbaric slaughterhouse. There was barely a faint glimmer. Actually, there was no faint glimmer. It was probably just, I don't know, a fluke. The point is that, okay, humanity, barbaric slaughterhouse, we know that it repeats itself. It's a disaster. It's repeating itself right now. They go together. I mean, that's, I'm sure that I've said it on here before, but I'll say it again. And I think it's like the foundational statement of critical theory. Walter Benjamin said, something to the effect, every document of civilization is also a document of barbarism. That's sort of the quickest way of putting it. And to respond to that, you know, what does it mean type thing, I guess they just throw it in there. I would say it's the run-of-the-mill movie crap to make you feel better about this actually atrocious refugee situation. But yeah. yeah, I mean, like, what does he do? He doesn't do anything for anybody. It's, this is not even like Schindler's List. This, he's not trying to help anybody out. It's just sheer survival. But and in a certain sense, it's real that way. You know, that it's just like, how do you get through the thing? But he gets through the thing on his belief that pulling strings is going to work. And like I said, that only works the first time around. And even then, only barely. I mean, he still ended up in the concentration camp, you know? But if we look at the quote again, the faint glimmers of civilization, it's like his idea of what civilization is, it's truly superficial. It's like, I am going to put on perfume so you can't smell my funk. It's as stupid as it gets. It's like sucking up to rich people. That's civilization. And then in comparison, you know, even though he sticks up for this very brave immigrant boy, you know, what is his definition of civilization? And I'm sure, you know, if you're living in that world, to apply it to what we know, or at least what I've observed, okay, then usually the humanity or the world of the immigrant is less so than the world of the wasp. So what is it then? It's that classic thing where Mustafa has to be like absolutely perfect and absolutely desperate and then he can count. And even then it's only if the right people can pull the right strings at the right time. It's still a beautiful movie. It's just problematic. They really wanted to shove that line down your throat though because didn't they use it at least twice? The whole scene goes basically twice with almost everything exactly the same except that once... Monsieur Gustave is the one who says it, and then the second time, it's Mustafa saying it in the voiceover. Yeah, absolutely. It is sort of me bringing in that eco-critique of the animated films, where you see not even capitalism at that point, just civilization itself critiquing itself, almost without knowing it. Critiquing itself, but not doing a very good job of critiquing itself. 
Well, like I said, almost without knowing it, leaving enough holes that it's actually quite easy to be like, this is bullshit, you know? Just because we're traveling on a train doesn't mean that we should have to like worry about getting fucking shot in the head. That would seem to be an obvious thing. Like it shouldn't depend on how well perfumed we are or who we know. Which Dorothy we know. So basically within this film, the centerpiece of the Grand Budapest Hotel is this priceless painting, which is titled Boy with Apple. And actually, I did some research, and the artist's name, I don't know, this interested me for some reason, like, the artist's name was fake, and it was done on commission for the film, and it actually was sent back to Wes Anderson in Europe. The question here is, again, of taste, because when they go to steal the painting, and they do steal the painting, you know, them as a team, they take boy with apple and then, well, they're accused of stealing it. I mean, it's a, it's a whole controversy. But when they take it and they feel like it's rightfully theirs, what do they replace it with? It's something that's more or less pornographic. Yeah, and it reminded me of the style of Egon Schele because that was a lot of what he did. He did studies on nude women and usually prostitutes, actually you know, within his realm. And I thought, oh my gosh, that looks like Shele. Well, specifically the kind of thing that Nazis would hate. Right, exactly. But the whole question here is of, I, and that kind of angered me a bit, you know, because what marks good art and what marks good taste and what is deemed worthy of putting up for different class levels. We can consider that as almost as a diss. If you replace Boy with Apple with, you know, this almost yeah, you're right. Pornographic scene of two women. What does that say, again, about women, but also about taste and art and the time period as well? I mean, I just think that that replacement is supposed to basically be a diss to the family. Well, what were the characters that you folks identified with? Let's try to guess which each person identified with most. I was telling my other boss this the other day. I like, I find it so hard because I feel like I'm cut from the cloth of God, but also I'm a piece of shit. So it's like the duality of man. Who do I choose? <laughs> who speaks oh. like that? Oh my goodness. It's an Anthony shit. We speak like that. Okay, first let's go with Madeline. Who would Madeline most identify with? Anthony from Bottle Rocket. Probably right now, yeah. <laughs> Based on what you just said moments earlier. My answer was going to be either Christofferson or Ash. There's the duality right there. I'm both at the same time. Duality. What about Rachel? I thought that Rachel was either Chaz Tannenbaum or uh, maybe the possum. She's Kylie yeah. I don't know why this feels cool. totally inaccurate, but the first character that popped into my mind was Klaus from The Life Aquatic. Oh, Klaus. I love him. Klaus. Who would Frank identify with? I feel like it's obvious, but whatever. This is probably an unconventional choice, but I'm going to say, I'm going to say zero because, no, 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 no. hear me out. This is why. Because you're doing your best, you're always busy, you're juggling a million things at once, and your mind is going a zillion miles a minute. I would have, of course, picked Steve Zissou. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> And for mine. But for you, Anna, 
from the moment I rewatched this movie, realized that you are very much Margot Tannenbaum. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. I even have a cigarette in my room right now. Oh my God. <laughs> Again, duality. If we're talking about duality, you are one and the other. So Mustafa and the other one, Christofferson and Ash, and I am Margot and Dignan. And Dignan. That's a that's an interesting combo. That's hilarious. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. <laughs> oh God. Listening to Professor Frank Fucile, research assistant Anna Wendorf, and me, sound editor Madeline McCabe. The Pointless Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, funded in part by the University of Wisconsin Eau Claire Office of Research and Sponsored Programs. Today's episode is Vile by the Melvins on their album Ozma, and Love Despite of Great Faults by Blonde Redhead on their album Melody of Certain Damaged Lemons. Remember to troll us on Twitter at Pointless Scent and follow us on Instagram at The Pointless Century. We're also selling the Pointless Century t-shirts now, so if you're interested in supporting your favorite anti-fascist cultural studies podcast, click the link in the description below for our new merch. We'll see you next time with a brand new episode of The Pointless Century. 